You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. So, hello everyone. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, as Pete says. And it's a little bit of a frantic journey. It's kind of, it might blow your mind a little bit. This certainly blows my mind. When I read it, I had to stop, read it again, go, what? And then read it again, go, Really? And it, kind of, it needs a kind of an open mind to come to it. Talk about an open mind. There's a really great uh, little sketch um, from Friends about an open mind. And I thought we'd just kick off with that. So uh, here we go. Let, let's, let's, let's have a little bit of that. I, I like it. It just makes me laugh. So it's a good reason to put it in here. Can we kick that off? Uh-oh. It's Scary Scientist Man. Okay, Phoebe, this is it. In this briefcase, I carry actual scientific facts. A briefcase of facts, if you will. Some of these fossils are over 200 million years old. Okay, look, before you even start, I'm not denying evolution, okay? I'm just saying that it's one of the possibilities. It's the only possibility, Phoebe. Okay. Ross, could you just open your mind like this much? Okay. Now, wasn't there a time when the brightest minds in the world believed that the Earth was flat? And up until, like, what, 50 years ago, you all thought the atom was the smallest thing until you split it open and this, like, whole mess of crap came out. (laughs) Now, are you telling me that you are so unbelievably arrogant that you can't admit that there's a teeny tiny possibility that you could be wrong about this? There might be a teeny, tiny possibility. I can't believe you caved. (laughs) What? You just abandoned your whole belief system. Mm. No, I mean, before I I didn't agree with you, but at least I respected you. (laughs) No, how... How are you going to go into work tomorrow? Oh. How, how are you going to face the other science guys? How, how are you going to face yourself? Oh. <laughs> that was fun. So who's hungry? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I just find that hilarious. But it does uh, say something, doesn't it? It says uh, something about us holding a, a point of view and then coming to um, a scripture or coming to a situation and hanging on to that for dear life. And I'd like us to uh, perhaps have that teeny weeny possibility of uh, God breaking into your life and the word of God having an impact on you. Let's pray. So, dear Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that you are here to comfort us, to challenge us, to enrich us, and to pour your love upon us. Thank you for the worship that we've had that's talked about grace and mercy. I just pray right now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will continue to work in us, convict us, comfort us, and strengthen us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you have a Bible, or if you have a phone with the Bible in it, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, 
from 1 to 30. I'm going to read it pretty quick, and then I'm going to go and read a little bit more. So um, Mark chapter 9. I'll start reading this, and you can either just listen in or you can follow. As I said, when I started reading it, I went, what? Mm, Really? So be prepared. And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Teacher, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he didn't know what to say, because they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked themselves, saying, Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Last verse for now. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them, first half. So, if I was to send that message on text, I'd run out of emojis. You know, it'd be like, what? What? No, fire, power, wow. And like, I just sort of described this passage in the next slide as being something like that. Have you, I used to watch um, Batman. And do you remember when they used to go, pow, and the whole thing is, pow. It used to come up, this is what this passage is like. It's like, nah, come on. It's kind of really difficult to get hold of. It's just packed with supernatural, miraculous dimensions that we don't normally associate with testimony. And the reality is that Jesus is proven to be a, a historical figure. We have no problems with that. There's no dispute about that. Uh, Roman historians, commentators of the time, all agree that Jesus existed. No problems. There's no dispute around that. Throughout his time of living, there were lots of conversations about his identity. Who 
really was he? Was he a carpenter from Nazareth? Was he a prophet? Was he a good teacher? Who was he? So I'm just going to give you a little bit of context to this verse to this, that we've just read by dropping back and just taking out. If you've got a pen and you're one of these people who like to take notes, I'm going to whiz through it. If not, just listening, you'll get the picture after a couple. Mark chapter 134. Sorry, Mark chapter 111. It's his baptism in, uh, in a big, big uh, river. And in the river, uh, when it gets baptized, something happens. They say, uh, a voice comes from the uh, heavens and it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And all of a sudden, it's God saying, this is my beloved son. Okay, that's interesting. Mark 1.34, he's walking around and demons are there and they want to say things to him. Oh, oh, it's the son of God. He said, shh, don't say a word. It's not the right time. Okay? And then Mark 2.56, Jesus heals a man. And in healing him, he says, your sins are forgiven. And so all the learned people there, the theologians and the scribes and all those clever people, they pick this up and go, he can't say that. He can't say your sins are forgiven. That's not reserved for a normal guy. That's reserved for someone who's like God. How can you say that? Who is this guy? How dare he? Who gives him that authority to say that? And then Mark 3.11, there's unclean spirits running around and they recognize him. And they call him by name. Say, oh, he is the son of God. Don't. Have you come to torture us already? Now they recognize some sort of spiritual authority about Jesus. And they immediately are subdued and immediately effectively acknowledge that this Jesus is more than just like you and I. Okay. So we then go Mark 3.22. And the scribes now see all the miracles that he's doing. The miraculous is happening. And they can't get it together. It's kind of confusing them. I say, hang on. He can't be the son of God because we don't accept that. So then he must be doing these miracles by some other power. And this is where Jesus gets a bit stern. He goes, ha, 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 hold on a minute. You can do lots of things, but what you mustn't do is blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That's an unforgivable sin. And what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is working through him and he is the Son of God working in tandem with God. And all of a sudden the scribes are now looking at him and saying, how does this work? Chapter 4, we're getting there. Jesus commands the sea to be calm. Do you remember, if you know the story, is in, in, in the sea, there's lots of uh, storms and waves and all sorts of things clashing. And he just says, hey, sea, be calm. And the sea is calmed. And then the people in the boat, his friends, they go, what sort of man is this that he can actually say to the sea, be calm, and it is calm? Something's going on about this person's identity. He is more than a man. There's something that we can't quite pick up here. And then there's a legion of demons. A legion is like a Roman legion. How many is that? Anyone do uh, Roman history? Come on, help me. A legion. I think it's a thousand. But I could be wrong. You're going to have to come back and tell me on that one. It's loads. Many. And uh, they are roaming about and they are, are in pigs. 
and they see Jesus and they recognize his authority. They don't even take him on. Can you imagine a thousand of them or ten thousand on one of Jesus? And they, they're frightened. This is spiritual, supernatural, spiritual dimension authority invested in Jesus Christ. And then King Herod. He's a, not such a good guy. And he um, kind of killed someone called John the Baptist because he didn't like his message. He heard about Jesus, and all of a sudden fear took him. And he said, who is this guy? Is he John the Baptist who has risen again? So right the way through his ministry, there's a real kind of understanding, or trying to be an understanding, a grasp of who he is. Anyway, just before this event that we read, he is with his disciples, and he says to Peter, he says to all of his disciples, who do men say I am? Really key question. What, do, what does society say about me? What does social media say about me? What does Instagram say about me? What does Facebook say about me? Who do men say I am? And they give an answer. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say this, some say that, some say great prophet. Then he asked the question. Who do you say I am? Now, why is this important? Because at this point, Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And, and in, not in this chapter, but in Matthew, he says, actually, you know what? That's not from your common sense. That's not from your, your, your learning. That's not from your education. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. That's the Spirit of God. That's made a revelation. And he now acknowledges who he is as the Son of God. And immediately after that, he takes them up to the mountain, which is where we were, and he is transfigured. And he is in communion with Elijah and Moses. Now, why is this important? Because Elijah is one of the major prophets. And Elijah is the guy who performed 16 miracles. Huge things. Now, I said that this needs emojis and exclamation marks and question marks, and you have to reread this because it's pretty deep. But Elijah prays to God, and fire comes down from heaven. He prays for the drought to end, and rain comes. He restores a child who's died back to life. He divides the river Jordan. This is a pretty heavy-duty dude. And he's there, and he's talking to Jesus. And then on the other side, you've got Moses. Now, Moses is the guy who, have you seen the film where he, he did the Ten Commandments and they got that finger? Number one, just laser. Number two, I mean, this guy is used to all this huge, great, fantastic, amazing, supernatural life. And Moses is talking to Jesus as well. Not only that, Moses is the same guy who parts the Red Sea. Think about that for a miracle. He's the guy who brings down plagues on Pharaoh. He's the guy who brings water in the desert. He's the guy who brings manna from heaven. So these are titans of the Jewish faith. You've got Moses, you've got Elijah, and you've got Jesus in the middle. And you know what Jesus says? He says this in, in Matthew 5.17. Don't suppose I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. Let me say this. Jesus is greater than a prophet. He's greater than a lawgiver. His identity is the Son of God. And when he is there, 
He stands above Moses, above Elijah. He declares himself, he reveals himself to be the Son of God. This is absolutely important. Why is it important? Because straight after this, it says, uh, this, uh, a voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my beloved Son, hear him. Jesus is the Son of God. This has huge, huge implications. Because if you and I accept this, then everything that flows through this means a decision from us. If he's truly the Son of God, if he's just not a nice historical character, if he truly is, has a supernatural dimension, spiritual, miraculous dimension to who he is, then it's calling on a response from us. Who do you say Jesus is? Genuine question. Have you given it some thought? Who do you say he is? Peter, at this point, gets really excited. Oh my, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Oh my gee, oh my gee, oh my gee, oh my gee. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what's happened? Oh, there's Jesus, there's Elijah. And he gets, he gets so, it's typical Peter, right? What happens is, sorry, what happens is he gets so excited about things, he wants to do things. So he says, let's, I tell you what, this is amazing. Let's just build three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's party and worship and let's have a great time because we're on the mountaintop here and it is so cool and it's all. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. This is the moment. And he's really into it. It's captured in the moment. And who wouldn't be? I mean, that's pretty, pretty radical, right? These sort of things don't happen every day. So he says that, but I just want to say this. In this glorious state where he's communing, this mountaintop experience that Jesus has, that is strengthening him, that is encouraging him, he's in a place where he's in communion with others, he's in his, his glorified body, it's wonderful. He, again does not forget his focus and his purpose. It's amazing, you know, I know many of us have had various levels of success in our lives in different things. Isn't it so easy to become heady and become caught up in success? I know so many people um, who I started out with as a young boy, and uh, we all started out uh, fairly grounded in Christianity. And as we've grown up, and as we've got successful, and as we've become more material, and as we've done things that have blessed us, and we've got all this stuff around us, all of a sudden we forget who we are. We forget about God. We forget about church. We forget about our roots. We forget about our family. And we become someone who we're not. Jesus is having a mountaintop experience. And he's having Peter that's willing to start worshipping him. As people worship you and I, you know that. People admire you. People like you. You know, you, you do your job and you exceed your targets. And you've got a great business. And your mom's proud of you. And your family loves you. And you love that. And we love that. And that's great. But when that starts to divert from who we are as people, something's gone wrong. But that didn't happen with Christ. He is on a mountaintop experience with people ready to worship him. And he moves from that position. And he walks down the mountain. While walking down the mountain with his people, he's telling them, I am going to die. I am going to die because he has a purpose that's greater than that mountaintop. He has a world story to fulfill. 
He's got to go from the mountaintop to the valley. He's got to go from that mountaintop to where the people are. And when he gets to where the people are, they're in dispute. They're in argument. There are unmet needs. And that's where he's going. But he's not just staying at that bottom of the mountaintop. He's moving beyond there to Jerusalem to die for the world. For die, to die for people who have not yet been born. Because he is the Son of God. And that is his purpose. So, he does that. He moves from the mountaintop to the valley and he meets people, as we've just read. This is pivotal. It's not the first time that he's left heavenly communion for people. It is his goal. This is why he was there. So he does that. Now, if you're an anti-supernaturalist, you've already had a lot of problems. <laughs> you know, if you think, well, this supernatural thing, I can't cope with it. Neither could I. But you know, the Bible doesn't give any apology. It doesn't make any concessions. It doesn't try to excuse it. It just delivers it as a testimony. And that's our problem, not the Bible's. So he moves on. And uh, let me just read verse 14 to 22. I've got about eight minutes, so I want to just finish quite quickly. And he came to the disciples. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing them. That's at the bottom of the mountain. That's verse 14. 15. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing? Then one of the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples. They couldn't cast it out. Uh, asked them to cast it out, they couldn't. He answered, how long, O faithless generation, shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him, the, the boy, to Jesus. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father answered from childhood. And often he has been thrown both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child, of the, uh, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's just stop there. So, He's left the mountain, comes to the foot of the mountain where all this dispute, all this uh, unmet needs are happening. And he wants to do something. I want to say something. Jesus is here to heal. Now, I can only say that, and you can only accept that, if we first accept who Jesus is. Because he has the capability of healing he can deal with the supernatural, the spiritual, the miraculous, and he can intervene in life. We have no doubt about who he is. He's not a prophet. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist come back, risen from the dead. He's not any of those. He's the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God and he has compassion, he has the ability, the desire, and the power to heal. So, bring him to me, he says. It's really interesting because that is a call for many of us. Bring him to me. If you go to Sainsbury's 
I don't go to Sainsbury's. I prefer online shopping, but actually Catherine does most <laughs> of it. But if you go to Sainsbury's and you ask them where the brown rice is, they will say, over there, aisle eight, number seven, there. And then you say, thank you. And then you go have to walk and have walk and walk. Then you never find it. Then you have to ask someone else. Now, if you go to Waitrose and you say, where is the brown rice? They say, sir, I will bring you. (laughs) Jesus says, bring him to me. Now, you know, sometimes as believers, we're really good at pointing where people should go. But I believe that as believers... He's enlisting us into service. And he's saying, bring them to me. We know people at work. We know people in our uh, homes. We know people in the wider family who need bringing to Jesus, who need picking up, bringing to church, picking up, bringing to a home, picking up, actually being taken there. And I'm suggesting, I'm encouraging us as believers to bring people to Jesus He's the Son of God. He is able to meet their needs. Now, there are people with needs. And there's Jesus with the answer. And it needs bringers to pull these two things together. And so often, we see the gap. And we prefer to be Sainsbury's rather than Waitrose. And people try and make their way. But they need another sign to find it. Then they're like me. You just never find the thing. But they have unmet needs. But also those people who have needs, who don't want to be brought. I don't know if you like my father. My father, um, he, he, he was in a Christian home. My mother's a Christian. My father wasn't. And every, every time we went to church, he wouldn't come. And it was years afterwards. I've told this story many times. I never apologize for it. Many years afterwards, he said, you know, when you went to church, I stayed at home. And I cried for years. I cried because I knew the whole duty of man was to serve God. But he didn't get there. Eventually, some guys from the church went to him and prayed with him and brought him to church. And he became a Christian. What I'm trying to say is some of us, we know where we should be. You may be here right now. You know faith. You know Christ. You know Christianity. You've been brought up. None of this is that new to you. You might not know the detail, but you know that you have unmet needs and Christ meets the needs. But you're like my father. You're just hanging back a little bit. You're folding your arms and you're crying internally. You've got the conflict internally, but you know Jesus is the answer. I want you to be brought to Christ right now. I want you to know him. I want you to have your needs met simply because Christ loves you and has compassion. But there's something else in verse 21. Do you remember? He says, how long has this child been like this? What a question. How long? But it's a good question. Because do you know what? Sometimes our needs and our problems happen over many, many years, decades. And what happens is that over this time we lose faith. We lose hope. And this has happened since childhood. It doesn't say what the age of the son was. But let's assume several years Several years have been thrown into the fire. Several years have been thrown into water. Seven years have been convulsed. That will get to anybody. And what happened is hope 
and faith is reduced all the time. Because of that daily grind, that daily experience, that disappointment. Maybe you start out with high faith, but by the time a couple of years has ended, it's very low. I just want to say to you, Jesus is the Son of God. That faith can be rekindled. That faith can be reset. That faith is there simply not because of your experience of years of how long, but because of Jesus being the Son of God. And he comes and he, does, he leaves the Son and he addresses the Father. And he talks to the Father and says, Father, if you believe all things are possible. And the Father in conflict, in tears, says, I believe, but help me to believe. And I believe there might be people in here who say, yeah, Paul, you know, I don't get all the details, I don't have all the answers, it doesn't quite make sense, but I believe, but kind of help me to believe, because I kind of don't, I haven't worked all this out. You know, and I've been in that place where you know something to be true, but there's this little thing going on on the inside. I'm just saying, That Jesus is the Son of God. And today, he can take you from that place of unbelief to that place of faith. He can take you from that place of unmet need to the place of need being resolved. He can take you from a place of being uh, purposeless to being purposeful. He can take you from a place of being unloved to a place where you genuinely know Christ's love. That's who he is. That's our Jesus Christ. So I just want to end by saying this. He didn't just resolve this with the son. He resolved this with the son's father. He's interested in families. He's interested in your relationships with other people. It's not just you. It's you plus your friend. It's you plus your partner. It's you plus your dad. And there are sometimes relationships that have been spoilt by things that have happened And as Jesus touches you and restores you, you will find a ripple effect. Because when Jesus gets into your heart and your life, it makes such a difference to everybody around you. Well, he eventually, I won't read it, but he eventually heals the the boy. And the boy looks like he's dead. And what he does is he picks him up by the hand and he says, arise. And that boy has a new future. No more a prisoner to his demons no more a prisoner to his condition or his environment he has a new future this is what Jesus does for us he's amazing Jesus has a vision for the world it wasn't just there that he ended he went from there to Jerusalem and he died he rose three days later and he's coming back you know If you're really uncomfortable with the miraculous and the supernatural, Jesus was born a virgin birth. We have to deal with that. (laughs) He died a death and rose again. We have to deal with that. And then he's coming back in a cloud. We have to deal with that. (laughs) Jesus is the Son of God. He works outside of our reason, but he also works with compassion for our good and for our benefit. God bless you.